There's a famous painting that has hung in a European galley, gallery for many, many years. No one really knows how long it's been there. It's uh, a very unique painting. On one side, you have uh, the devil. On the other side, you have a young man. And in between them, you have a chessboard. And on the chessboard are all these pieces with some being captured by the devil and some being captured by the young man. But what's interesting is the faces. The devil's face is one of arrogance, of, of assured victory. The young man is forlorn and distressed. You see, the young man has waged his soul against the devil in this chess match. Now, not at all a biblical understanding uh, of chess, nor of how the devil works or anything of that nature, but we get this picture of this young man, and the title of the painting is Checkmate. And so this, this painting, being so famous and being something that people would go and see, a man by the name of Paul Murphy who was an American chess world champion, was touring through Europe, and he wanted to see this painting. And he came and he stood and looked at the painting. And he stood there for a while with his hand on his chin, deep in thought. And all of a sudden, like a light bulb going on, he goes, I have it, I need a chessboard. Someone bring me a chessboard. And they brought him a chessboard, and he said, I figured it out. There's one way I can save this young man's soul. Only one, mind you, but there's a way. And so he showed how, through a secret sequence of moves, that he could save this young man's soul from the devil. Now, the, the, the story is, is fanciful, and it's kind of an interesting take on it, but there is a kernel of truth there, in that the, the devil has checkmated the, the, all of humanity with, with the sin that is rampant throughout our culture, throughout our world. And yet Christ has the one move to redeem it all, the one move to save us all. And this is what we celebrate here at Christmas. We're not just celebrating a baby born in a manger, but we're celebrating the Son of God who came and died in our place and provided the way out of the checkmate. So our, our big idea for today is that we know from Scripture that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone for God's glory. This, this idea of we are in a vast darkness and God the Son came to the darkness and not only came to the darkness, but came to us in the darkness and then pulls us out, redeems us out with his light. See, there's lots of different themes for Christmas and some of them you'll hear on our Christmas Eve services and others of them you'll hear in other sermons and books and Advent readings. But these themes of light and darkness hopelessness and hope, chaos and order. All of these themes can be found in what we're looking at today. So if you'll turn with me, we're going to look at two different sections. The first one is going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. So about the middle of your Bible, maybe go a little bit to the left and find Isaiah. The second one will be in John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, we will finish here in a minute. So let's start with the Isaiah passage. The period of time that this is taking place is a one of incredible darkness, like the, the worst period of time for Israel. Political upheaval, idol worship, and even worse than all of that, God is pouring out his judgment on the nation of Israel because of their sins, because of the fact that they've walked away from him. And this is a time of tremendous strife. Similar maybe to some of the things that we've experienced. I think it was much more uh, terrible what Israel was dealing with, but this year has been one that has been full of darkness and strife and upheaval. 
But what is God's message through the prophet Isaiah into this darkness? Well, the message is a child. And it just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to us. But let's see what Isaiah has to say. So let's read it. We're going to read verse 2 and verse 6 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us the son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let's start there in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So what, what, is this, what is this verse talking about? What does this verse mean? Well, the first thing we see is the word walked. They walked in. This just simply means they're living their lives in the midst of this darkness. So even though the world is dark, even though there's political upheaval and there's idolatry and God's wrath is being poured out on the nation of Israel, we see that these people are just living day to day. They're just trying to, to get by. They're just going step by step, enduring the darkness. One of the things we see in chapter 8 of Isaiah is that in verse 21, it says that they are angry, they're upset, they're disappointed, but yet, and this is the cool thing in verse 21, it says, and yet they kept looking up. So even though, even though the nation of Israel is having this dark period, they are looking up, they're looking for their deliverer, and God comes through, and we'll see this in Isaiah's prophecy. There's this darkness which is throughout chapter 9 starts the very first few words of, of, of the chapter. It says, in gloom. It's this idea of just oppressive darkness. Darkness usually symbolizes judgment and its effects, and light is usually deliverance in the Bible. I'm reminded of this, of this time when I went to the Oregon Caves with my family. Or a time that I went with a youth group to the, the ape caves over in Washington. And these are just underground caves, and they just go for miles and miles, and they're just incredible. They're beautiful. But no matter when you go to these caves, if you're on a tour, at some point, they will turn all the lights off just to show you how incredibly dark it is. So dark, in fact, that if the lights are off, you can have your hand right in front of your face, and you cannot even see it. One of the things that was the coolest was when we were in the uh, Oregon Caves. They turned on a little teeny pin light, you know, something that you would give a, a six-year-old, a little teeny light, and they think that now they have the coolest flashlight in the world. But they turned that little teeny light on, and boom, that, just that tiny little bit of light, and the whole room is now visible. You can now start to see shapes and so on. And this is, this is where Israel finds itself. There is a glimmer of hope, and Isaiah is pointing it out. He says, there is a light, and this light is going to be bright. And Isaiah says, they have seen a light. This is the prophetic perfect, meaning it is so assured that it's going to happen that we're going to talk about it in the past tense. This light is coming, and there is nothing that's going to stop it. This is not wishful thinking, but an objective reality. This joy, this light is coming. So Isaiah is saying right here at the beginning, uh, God has a plan. He's bringing light to this world. And then in verse 6, he tells us what that light is. And it's the surprise of surprise. It's a child. This is crazy talk. But this kind of crazy talk we should expect because isn't it crazy to think that God would send his son and place all the sins of the world on him so that us rebellious creatures could be brought into fellowship with him? 
So crazy talk to us may just be sanity to God. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So that word for is a word that tells us what came before this. This is the reason why all this stuff before happened. So the reason why we can now get out of the darkness is because of this child. Notice it's to us. This is God giving a gift to us sinners. A child is born. You know, if, if I want an invincible figure to march across the stage and to be the one that we're going to rally behind, I'm not expecting a child. I'm expecting, you know, Hercules. I'm expecting some gigantic human being who can destroy enemies with just one hand. But instead, God says, I'm going to send a child. And isn't it interesting that just the child coming is enough? He hasn't even done anything. Just the fact that he has come into this world is enough for the light to spread. His birth assumes his death. And again, we cannot get hung up on his birth and think that's the entirety of the story. Because when he is born, Easter's coming. And those two things are what makes this special, makes this unique. I love this quote, God's answer to everything that has terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and the Babylonians and every other empire and all the big shots in the world that he can defeat them by sending a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to send a bigger bully, but to send the child Christ, one man. One God-man to solve the problems. So we get these four wonderful names, these royal names that express his divinity and his humanity right there together. The Emmanuel, God with us. Wonderful counselor simply means an extraordinary strategist. This is not a counsel like someone you go and get counseling from, but this would be like the person who sits next to the king and gives him the best advice. Wisdom beyond mere human wisdom. Mighty God. This is a title used for God Himself throughout the Bible. Isaiah 10 talks about it. Deuteronomy 10.17, Nehemiah 9.2, Jeremiah 32.18. Just continually throughout. Mighty God. This means warrior God. This child is a warrior God. Everlasting Father. This is the, probably better translated as everlasting king. It means the, the one that's the head of a family. Prince of Peace the one on which the nations will rely for peace. This is not a peacemaker at any cost. This is a ruler who says, we're going to have peace and I will bring it by force if necessary. So look at this. As a wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats all of the enemies. So let's hide behind him. Let's be behind him. As the everlasting Father, He loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy Him and enjoy a relationship with Him. And as the Prince of Peace, He reconciles us while we were still enemies. Let's welcome His dominion. Let's submit to Him. This, this king that is referenced here, this picture, is better than anything that David's line ever produced. It's better than any king that has ever sat on the throne in Judah. 
Jonathan Edwards writes, He is a king of the most unparalleled clemency and grace. Never was any kingdom ruled by a government so mild and gentle and gracious. He is exceedingly gracious in the manner of his ruling his people by sweetly and powerfully influencing their hearts by his grace. Not governing them against their wills, but powerfully inclining their wills. So this, this first picture here in Isaiah is that we have this book. Isaiah was written 800 years before the books of the New Testament. And so in this 800 year span, Isaiah says, this little one is coming. Not only will he be a child, he'll grow into a man and he is the ruler of all. And the only way we know this we didn't figure this out by our brains. We didn't figure this out by figuring out a code in the stars. We figured it out because Scripture records it. This is our sole place of going to understand this story, understand us. And so we have the Bible alone that reveals this to us. Now, not only do we have the Bible alone telling us about the coming of this child, but we also have the Bible explaining who he is. So turn to John chapter 1, starting in verse 9. This is John's famous prologue to his book, the gospel that's not like the other, th other three gospels. This is a very unique book, and John starts it not at the birth of Jesus, but even farther back in the beginning of time. But right here in verse 9, he explains to us this light issue, and we see the connections to Isaiah. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. See, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we see here is we see that God, the Son, the Word of revelation that shows us what God is like, has come into this world, and this world has rejected Him. This is the sad picture of the first part of this passage. We see four different ways that He reveals Himself. We see it personally, we see it historically, we see it through creation, and we see it through the incarnation. So let's track through this as we go through verses 9, 10, and 11. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word true means genuine. It means the actual light. And this word light, again, is that we see that at the very beginning in Genesis where God separates the light and the dark. And John takes that and applies that to Christ right here in John 1. And just so we get it clear, Jesus doesn't like to leave us hanging. He comes and says, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I love that. Jesus says, I am the light, and I am life. Notice in that second part of verse 9, it says, He gives light to everyone. This is not something that's for a certain group, for a certain time. It's everyone, everywhere. Now, you've, you've, re you've heard us read it. Verse 10 says that some of them didn't know him and didn't choose him. This is two separate issues. One is the light is for everybody, but there are going to be people that are going to deny the light. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But understand, this is not a light just for the Jews. This is not a light just for the Pharisees. This is not a light just for us in this room. It's a light for everyone if they choose it. So in verse 9, we see Jesus' personal revelation. He gives the light. He is the light. We also see historical. This is grounded in history. This is a historical event. 
The light shines on all and forces us to make a choice. We either believe in Christ or we don't. There's no middle ground. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. See, all of us are on the hook because Christ made us. We belong to him. We are his. And yet we are denying that when we choose to do something other than follow him. Creation reveals this in Paul's writings, Romans 1, 8-22. For what is known of God is plain to them because God has shown it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, Divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So that they did not know in verse 10 parallels Paul's, they did not honor Him in verse 21. So there's two reactions to this light. One reaction is reject it and flee because it exposes everything. John brings this up later in chapter 3 when he says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So when the light shines, those that love the darkness flee and hide. The other response to the light is for those to receive it and take it in. Verse 21 of chapter 3. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there's these two responses we have to the light. Verse 11. He, Christ, the, the light, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. One translator said, a better way to explain this would say, so he came into his own home of humans and his own family of human beings did not welcome him. Just to get the idea of what's going on here. So Jesus enters into creation, the the place that he made, and then the family that he created, which is all humanity, because we are the only beings in all of the universe that have the, the created in God's image. There's nothing else here on earth that even comes close. We are in God's image. So what John is telling us is that Jesus came down personally, fully, humanly into his creation. Not only did he come into his creation, but he came to those who he created in his image. And instead of welcoming him in, we, we pushed him out. We executed him. This is similar to what all the prophets have experienced. Isaiah, again in 65, says, I spread out my hand. This is God talking through Isaiah. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26 From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, I have persistently sent all my servants and prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So just as Jesus came to his own, just as the prophets came and spoke on God's behalf to God's own, they all rejected him. And let's not think that we would have been any different. We like to think, well, if only I had been there, I would have been the one apostle that would have actually believed Jesus and followed him. I wouldn't have been like the rest. Or I wouldn't have been like the Jews saying, crucify him. I would have been the one who would have gotten it. And we need to understand that that's just not the case. 
And that's the tragedy we see here in the beginning of John. John had already referenced this in 3.19, but I think it's worth saying again. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, back in Isaiah 9.2, we saw that they were immersed in darkness, and I said they were walking in darkness just trying to get by. But at the same time, there are some that the darkness is so overbearing that they begin to love it. They fall in love with it, and it begins to be the thing they want. It's the thing that they love. They are walking in the darkness. So when the light comes, they flee because the darkness is all they've known, and that's where they find, that's what they love, that's where they find their identity. And this is a tragedy if God had just left it there. But he didn't. There is a hope. There is hope for those who are in darkness. This tragedy is, is, is fixed by this hope. And this hope we see in verse 12. And it starts with the word but. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So see this. It's, it's those who received and believed and it was all done by God to make them the children of God. John softens uh, what he had been talking about in 9, 10, and 11 by saying, yes, there's, there's wholesale rejection of the Messiah. But there's a remnant. There's a, a group that gets it. There's a group that loves the light and wants to be in the light. And we see who these people are in verse 12. It's those who receive him and believed him. This is two separate ways of kind of saying the same thing. It means welcoming him in, trusting, and then submitting to him. This idea of receiving and believing is not just saying, well, I, I believe that Jesus existed. It's not saying, you know, I, I put my faith in him by uttering some words or filling out a card. It is wholesale following him, going after him with all your might. And this is where we see this idea of Christ alone saves us. It's clear here. Not receive Jesus and other things. Not receive Jesus and church attendance. Not receive Jesus and anything. It is Jesus. Receive Him and Him alone. He is the only one by which we are saved. And this believed in His name. John, the, the Apostle John throughout his book always uses believe as the, what they're supposed to do to become one of the followers of Christ. Be in Christ. But like we've seen in our study of James over the last few weeks, faith alone does not save. Because faith that stays alone doesn't, doesn't save. You have to have the, the actions that flow from it. This is one author's way of saying it. He says that saving faith is simple, but it never stays simple. In fact, in practice, simple believers never remain simple believers, but are moved by the Holy Spirit, whom they receive at new birth, to keep and to want, and to keep Jesus' commands and do what he says. So you notice that's way different than just saying, I put faith in him and I'm done. It's I put faith in him and I continually do that. And that is shown by the life that I now reflect of Christ. So we have this faith in Christ alone as the sole means of our salvation. He is the complete reason why we are saved. Nothing else matters. And, and this, I love it that in here in, in, in John it says, believe in his name. This means everything that's true about Jesus, we believe in all of it. His person, his character, his, the person himself. 
So what name is this talking about? Well, go back to Isaiah 9, 6. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These are the names of the one that we have our faith in. Christ alone through faith alone. And I love it. It says we have the right to become it. We talk about rights and that's in the news all the time. This is probably better uh, privilege or opportunity. We have the option to become children of God. And you might say, but aren't all of us children of God? No, the Bible does not say that. The Bible says we're all created by God and he has ownership over all of us. But the children of God are those who put their faith in Christ alone. And that's what makes you a child of God. And we see this as we keep going. 13, who were born, these children of God, who were born not of blood, so it's not by a biological choice, nor the will of the flesh, not a psychological choice, or the will of man, which means doing something good. So you're not, you're not saved, you're not born again by any of that. You're born again by God. Because it says, but of God. This is the new birth. All of John chapter 3 is dealing with this. It's the idea that God comes in and saves and we respond rightly to it. God's supernatural work is all that can make us a child of God. This is grace. See, grace is a free gift that is undeserved. So undeserved that you could never pay it back. And so we see it right here. It's not born of what we did and then therefore we've earned it as if it was wages. Instead, it is grace and grace alone. As a matter of fact, our new birth, when we become a follower of Christ and we are born again, really mirrors the virgin birth. I mean, in essence, one author says that that regeneration is a veritable virgin birth for all believers. What does that mean? Well, just like when Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph, Joseph didn't do anything. Mary definitely didn't do anything, but yet she was given this child. That's the same thing with us. When we respond in faith, it's because God has pushed us in grace. And that's the response that we are to have. And that's the rebirth. And we need this. We need this removal of darkness. We need this rebirth into the new light. Because you see, you love the darkness because you're in the old life. The new life is loving the light. And we think about you know, this idea of Jesus coming, and that, that's an amazing gift from God, but that's not the only gift, and that's not even the greatest gift. The greatest gift is that Jesus came, and then he will accept Christ's sacrifice in our place, and that will be for us. That's the grace alone that saves And then finally, John celebrates this in verse 14 as he tells us the reason why he did this was to glorify God. And we see God alone gets the glory. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh. God became flesh. He bridged the gap between us and Him. He did not cease becoming being God, but He took on flesh and then dwelt among us. Literally, this is the idea of a tent. And it harkens back to the idea of the tabernacle, which was the place where in the wilderness, God would make His presence most fully known so that the priests could go and meet with Him on behalf of all the people. Later on, it became the temple. But now, thanks to Christ's death and resurrection, the dwelling place is here. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. The infinite 
became finite. The eternal was conformed to time. The invisible became visible. The supernatural one reduced himself to natural. The word did not cease to be God, but became God in the flesh. And this only God just simply means the one son, the only one and only son, unique, one of a kind, for the glory of the Father. Not glory of anybody else, but the Father alone. It reminds me of in Exodus where Moses asks to see God's glory, and God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And then Moses, recounting it later in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love kept for thousands and thousands. And that's what we're seeing here in this grace and truth. This is the steadfast love and faithfulness. The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name displayed the divine goodness characterized by the ineffable grace and truth was the very same glory that John and his friends saw in the Word made flesh. It is what we long to see as we look at this baby Jesus and we look at the fact that he grows into the God-man and that we see him. This is God in human form. This is what God looks like. So for God, for the glory of, of himself, the God's Son came into this world to be the sole means by which we are saved. So what do we do with this grace and truth? And I want to conclude with these two thoughts. When we look at the cross, it's two beams. We have one vertical beam that has to be secured in the ground and goes up into the sky. And then we have a horizontal beam that would then hold the person who's being crucified in place. I want you to think of that, that horizontal beam as grace. It's the wide outstretched, wide outstretched arms of the person being crucified. They're the arms of the all-merciful, all-compassionate God. And this addresses one of the major longings of our human hearts, which is, does God love me? And the arms say yes. Then we think of the vertical beam. First of all, the vertical beam as truth must go deep down. It must have a firm foundation. But it also must be straight and it must be able to withstand and hold the, the, the horizontal. And this is the truth. And this is the second major longing, which is what our minds long for. We want to know truth. We, we talk about truth. We want to know what is really true. So this truth of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is enough to hold God's grace, which is enough to surround the world with His arms. So, as we look at this, through God's word, we're able to know that Christ is our one that we must trust in. We must put our faith in him and him alone. Not my works, not my church attendance, not this, not that, but in Christ and Christ alone. And the fact that we can do that is by grace alone. It's a free gift that God gave us because he knew we could never afford it. We could never pay it back. And all of this, we turn and we glorify God. So as we celebrate Christmas and we think of the baby that grows into the man, think about and glorify God for that wonderful gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you gave these words to the Apostle John so many years ago, but yet they mean something to us right here and right now. 
Lord, I pray as we go through our Christmas time and maybe a little less busy this year than usual, but as we go through it, that we would remember what your son did. Not that he was born, but that he lived the life we couldn't, that he died the death we deserved, and then he was raised again as a picture of what we would have if we're in him. I pray that we would be in him. In Jesus' name, amen.